Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Peter Stanley from the University of New South Wales, Canberra, at the Australian Defence Force Academy. In the early years of the Second World War, the greatest threat to Allied shipping in the Pacific and Indian Oceans came from German auxiliary cruisers, or raiders, as they became known. Most notably, one of them, the Cormoran, sank and was sunk by the cruiser HMAS Sydney off the Western Australian coast. This fierce duel has been covered in detail in episode two of season two of the Australian Naval History Podcasts and is still available to download. To discuss the story of the German Raiders today, I'm joined by Oberleutnant Zerze Tim Döbler of the Bundesmarine on the line from Germany. His academic studies included research on the German Raider campaign. Welcome, Tim. Also, Mr. John Perryman, who's the Director, Strategic and Historical Studies at the Sea Power Centre Australia, and Canberra writer Stephen Robinson, who last year had published his book, False Flags, Disguised German Raiders of World War II. Thank you all for joining us today. First off, Tim Dobler, what was the German naval strategy for operations in the Pacific and Indian Oceans? Um, as one can imagine, the German naval planning prior to the Second World War was highly influenced by the consequences um, of the Versailles Treaty, which limited uh, the Reichsmarine in size and strength after the First World War. Um, beside the difficulties uh, for the Germans to generally support a navy after 1918, um, the question of how a w future war would look like and how it will be fought was uh, omnipresent in the interwar period. Um, due to these uh, limitations, a clash of battle fleets was far from likely, and therefore the idea of a more intensive commerce warfare was shaped. Um, this finally led uh, to the plan to attack enemy, the enemy's most important sea lines of communication. But here we find the same lack of accuracy in wording a strategy like the German Imperial Navy uh, lacked before the First World War. Um, like in 1914, uh, the Navy made plans for several scenarios depending on uh, different enemies. And in uh, 1939, a war, a, great, uh, a war against Great Britain was the most unfavorable one. However, um, after uh, the outbreak of the war and the declaration of war upon Germany by Great Britain and France, Great Britain was uh, named the main target or uh, the main target for commerce warfare. Um, the task basically was to destroy the enemy's uh, merchant shipping to attack um, enemy units just in case they were inferior and to hide and escape into the vastness um, of the oceans. Depending on the range, the Kriegsmarine initially intended to uh, use U-boats and mine layers in the areas close to um, the British coast, uh, its pocket battleships and cruisers in the North Sea and the uh, Atlantic, and the auxiliary cruisers uh, had the task to cover all other oceans. Um, I assume that the high command of the Kriegsmarine thought about sending raiders as far as the Pacific and Indian Ocean, yet they never expressed it in the proper strategy. Hmm. Uh, thanks. Uh, Stephen Robinson, 
Can you explain what these Kriegsmarine auxiliary cruisers were? How many were there and, and how well armed were they? Well, auxiliary cruisers are commandeered civilian vessels that have been converted into warships. So what the German Navy did initially in World War I, but later in World War II, was to convert freighters into raiders. And then they could be armed with hidden weapons and voyage under false neutral flags. And thus, to unsuspecting eyes, they would appear to be neutral merchantmen on the high seas. So during World War II, um, the Germans converted 11 of these freighters into raiders, nine of which conducted operational missions, and seven of these in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, these raiders were heavily armed with 5.9-inch guns, torpedoes, rapid-fire anti-aircraft guns, mines, and seaplanes. So we're talking um, very, very deadly firepower here, all concealed in hidden compartments that could be swiftly brought into action when required. And this form of warfare back then was perfectly legal under the Hague Convention, provided that the German flag was raised and all neutral insignia removed before opening fire. And I believe the first... German vessel to open fire was the Orion. Uh, John Perriman, can you tell us about its exploits? Absolutely. Now, the Orion, in fact, it, it, um, its first victim to fall to it was, in fact, the, the Niagara, and it didn't fall to gunfire. It actually fell to a mine, and that mine had been sown in along a northwest line uh, to seaward of the Gulf of Haruki in New Zealand. So on the 18th of June, 1940, the Niagara strikes not one, but two of these mines. Uh, she goes to the bottom and she takes with her 2.5 million pounds of gold bullion, the property of the Bank of England, which was part of her, her cargo. So this is now happening at a time where in Europe, uh, the Blitzkrieg is, uh, is in full swing in, uh, in Europe. And on the other side of the world, all of a sudden war has come to us. Uh, in the Pacific. So this was a real sort of event for those people who, who were waking up in New Zealand that morning and learning of this news. Now, the response from the New Zealanders, um, the Niagara strikes this mine, the very first thing, of course, is to render assistance. So uh, this happens uh, not far from Auckland, about 60 nautical miles to the north, and they dispatch HMNZS Achilles to go and investigate. Now, the problem uh, with these raiders um, not just being heavily armed um, vessels in their own right, but they have this asymmetric weapon that they carry, which is the sea mine, and they have lots of them. So in an instant where a ship has fallen victim to a sea mine, any ship going to its assistance uh, must do so with extreme caution. And, of course, this was how uh, HMNZS Achilles found herself approaching that area fairly gingerly, uh, that morning with her paravanes rigged, which were basically uh, uh, a measure that would cut uh, moored mines free and provide the vessel some form of protection. Anyway, uh, she arrives on the scene and with the assistance of a couple of merchant ships, she's able to rescue all of the crew. None of the crew of the ship were actually killed, nor were the passengers. Um, so with the assistance of the Wanganella and a coaster by the name of the Capiti, 
Achilles is able to rescue all 349 of the crew and the passengers and recover them back to Auckland. Now, that's the first order effect. But what were the second and third order effects of um, these mines being sown? Well, the consequences were in New Zealand that automatically it brought all sailings from all New Zealand ports to a halt. They were suspended. Uh, then great effort, of course, was put into trying to find the ship that was responsible for this. In fact, the question was being asked, where did the mines come from? Now, clues to that came a little bit later on when two of the mines uh, washed up on New Zealand beaches. Uh, they were inspected by Royal New Zealand Navy personnel and very, very quickly identified as being German in origin and having not been there very long at all, chiefly because they weren't covered in marine growth. Naturally, Australia, Australia was advised of the presence of mines in the Pacific and the Australian Naval Board also took measures issuing immediate instructions that all of the merchant ships traversing its coastline were to keep out of the 100 battle line. In other words, deep water where it was safe. So all of a sudden you've got one, two mines go off, a ship gets sunk, and you've now got two countries reacting to this asymmetric threat. The next, the third order effect of this, of course, is that New Zealand has to get busy and start sweeping for these mine, mines. So while the shipping has been suspended and it's in port, out go the mine sweepers, and they're very, very busily uh, looking for the mine sown. Uh, and by September, they've actually recovered uh, and freed 131 of these. So you, you start to get a sense that uh, even though by that time the Orion was 100 miles distance, uh, the effect that she had had, not just on New Zealand, but Australia, just from that one operation, was telling already. So, Tim Derbler, the war has come to the southwest Pacific, to, to the Tasman Sea. Um, can you tell me how the German um, maritime authorities, the German uh, Admiralty, the Kriegsmarine, were controlling this war on the other side of the world? Um, well, the commanding officers of the German raiders were issued with orders prior to, um, prior to their uh, operation. And um, in these orders, they were just told where to go. And um, w once they were in their respective area of operation, they were free to... Um, to uh, sort of act on their own initiative. So it all comes down yeah, to the captain's yeah. initiative. Uh, exactly. And um, for example, uh, the Orion is actually a good example that, um, that the information the commanding officer got were very limited. Um, uh, the, when Orion left in April 1940, um, the captain wasn't aware of uh, Operation Weserübung, for example, the German assault on uh, Scan the Scandinavian countries, Denmark and Norway. And uh, she managed to slip through the Allied warships uh, from in the North Sea into the Atlantic. And the last order she received from the high command was uh, to, um, to start her uh, operation off the coast of Newfoundland to pretend that there is another German um, battle cruiser around. And um, from there, she... she um, uh, went south to uh, to the Pacific Ocean um, and yeah was more or less uh, by her own and the uh, the initiative was by the commanding officer. 
Mm. So that they weren't able to communicate with Germany, and they am I right in thinking they weren't able to receive messages from Germany? Uh, the Germans had a yeah quite good organize, organized um, uh, supply chain. So the Germans uh, regular regularly sent supply ships to um, to the Atlantic Ocean, to the Indian Ocean, um, to the Pacific Ocean. And uh, the, the, the supply ships exchanged information with the raiders and they received information of the ongoing operations as well. So what they did, they uh, took the information uh, got by the, they got by the raiders and brought them, for example, to Japan, to the German embassy, and they transmitted the information uh, to, um, to uh, Germany because um, one advantage of the raiders was they uh, that they were camouflaged and any um yeah use of radio signals would might have led to their um to to their uh sorry to their exposure yeah to their exposure exactly mm, thank you um john perryman uh, orion which tim has been talking about was followed by comet and I believe Comet entered the Pacific Ocean by an unconventional route. Can you explain how that went? Look, that's right. As, as these raiders dispersed variously, some of them took uh, the route through the Atlantic and others went elsewhere. But the Comet, I think, of all of them, has the most fascinating voyage and some of the most uh, fascinating challenges in getting to her area of operations. So as one might appreciate, um, the Comet's voyage began in Gottenhafen, which is uh, today in Poland. And ordinarily, it would want to break out through the North Sea and into the Atlantic. And there it would have a choice about going south and working into the South Atlantic, uh, coming underneath uh, Cape Town and, and working its way into the Indian Ocean, if that was the route it chose to take. But in this case, uh, an agreement had been come to with the Soviets, who uh, Germany had a non-aggression pact with at that time. And the German naval representative in Moscow had been working this angle whereby uh, he wanted to seek the Russians, not just their permission, but their assistance to help get this raider across the top of Russia, uh, over the top of Siberia and enter the Pacific through the Bering Strait. So this was, uh, uh, as you would appreciate, you know, quite a daunting thing. That uh, particular waterway in the winter months of the year is frozen solid and it can only be negotiated in the summertime. Even then, you need to have expert navigation skills and more often than not, a pilot who can guide you through. And that uh, was normally uh, in an icebreaker or a series of icebreakers, because you can imagine if you're traversing across the top of the USSR, it's a significant distance. So... When the operation began, uh, the, the ship left uh, Gottenhafen uh, in July, steamed northwards. It took a route along the coast of Sweden up into the Barents Sea and towards its first rendezvous with the first of three Soviet icebreakers. Now, what's really interesting here is to note the level of mistrust, notwithstanding the agreement that had been made between the Germans and the Russians, because the Germans were re reluctant to actually disclose the precise nature and movements of the comment as they didn't want the Russians to find the reason to cancel their participation. So when the comet actually arrived where it was supposed to for the first rendezvous, it happened unannounced. There was a little bit of a delay. Uh, the, the captain of the comet uh, used that time uh, in the Barents Sea 
to further drill his crew. And then he started his voyage eastward across the top, which took uh, quite a bit of time. Now, they did that in stages. Um, visibility was poor. There were ice flows. There were snow squalls. Uh, fog frequently caused the ships to lose sight of one another. And on those occasions, when Comet became stuck in ice, she was entirely um, dependent on the Russians to free her. Um, there were times where visibility was so poor that they only knew where the icebreaker was through uh, the sounding of bells and the use of searchlights. Uh, and that was the only way that they were able to maintain uh, contact. So when you consider the comet's voyage begins in July, uh, by September, the weather had improved and the comet found itself in open sea, uh, you know, with the bearing straight in front of it. But then there's a little bit of a twist to this story because the captain of the last icebreaker comes on board the comet and uh, speaks to the commanding officer and basically says, I've received orders to turn you around and take you back to Europe. And there's this, uh, you know, uneasy moment there where uh, Captain Eisen uh, turns around and says, look, you know, I, well, I've received no such orders from Germany. Why don't we just wait and see about that and see uh, if we can confirm the orders? Uh, in his own mind, though, he's reconciled that they've come this far and there's no way in the world that he's going to turn around. So he's already resolved to do that. And in fact, that's what happened. And that is how the comet actually ends up in the Pacific. Um, Captain Ison's uh, comments after this 3,300 mile voyage, an, an, an epic voyage which demanded long hours on the bridge in absolutely appalling conditions, um, you know, prompted him to reflect that this trip has been enough for me. I would not do it again voluntary a second time. Uh, but he'd achieved the, uh, the first part of his mission, which, which was to get into the Pacific. He was there now and he was about to meet up with some of his sister ships. Thanks, John. Can we turn now to those sister ships? Stephen Robinson, the, the next two raiders were Atlantis and Penguin. Can you tell us their stories? Yes, <clears throat> yes, absolutely. Um, these are both very fascinating ships. And in fact, they were both um, in peacetime sister ships of the Hansa Line. Now, together, both these raiders were the most successful raiders of World War II, operating in 1940 and 1941. And both had incredibly audacious and daring captains, Captain Rogue in the Atlantis and Captain Cruder in the Penguin. Um, but it was in the Indian Ocean that both raiders had their most success, but they also ventured into the Pacific as well. And both ships accounted for an incredible around about 150,000 tonnes of shipping. And with the um, Atlantis, there is one particular incident of note, and this is the Auto Mendon incident, which occurred on the 11th of November 1940. And it started off as a normal capture. The raider captured the British raider Auto Mendon. And during this capture, the German um, boarding party found numerous mailbags that were then taken back to the raider. But when they were analysed, they actually contained highly top secret British wartime cabinet papers that were destined to Singapore, outlining the entire defence plan and policy for the Far East. So effectively what these papers gave, in addition to a complete order of battle 
of British forces in the Far East was an assessment that the British were too committed to the war in Europe and the Mediterranean, that if Japan attacked the Far East, particularly Malaysia and Singapore, the British would not be in a position to send any reinforcements to the Far East. So effectively, that could give Japan a lot of confidence to go ahead and join the war. So naturally, Captain Rhodes realised the importance of these documents and entrusted them to a captured Norwegian tanker with a German prize crew that then sailed to Japan and handed the documents over to the German embassy. And the, and the naval personnel in the German embassy received permission to hand these documents over to the Japanese. And initially the Japanese were quite sceptical. They thought uh, the Germans have fabricated some evidence to try to help us, to encourage us to enter the war. But, but when their Japanese intelligence started to sort of confirm a lot of the contents of the document through other means, the Japanese realized that these were authentic documents and it certainly helped Japan um, decide that um, to go ahead with the Pearl Harbor operation that then led to the fall of Singapore. So quite an interesting little incident there. Going back to the Penguin, um, the Penguin also with a captured Norwegian tanker actually mined the approaches to several Australian ports in a very audacious operation in October, November, 1940, mining the approaches to Sydney, Melbourne, Hobart and Adelaide, which sank a total of four ships. The Penguin also, in a, in a quite a good coup, captured the bulk of the Norwegian whaling fleet in Antarctica, which was then successfully taken by prize crews to um, German-occupied France. In the end, um, both raiders met their fate after being intercepted by British cruisers. In May 1941, the HMS Cornwall intercepted the Penguin. Captain Cruder decided to go down fighting. Um, and, but unfortunately, um, an explosion detonated the mines on board, which um, killed most of the crew, over 300 of the crew, including Captain Cruder, and perished with only a very small number of survivors captured by the British. Um, the Atlantis, her extraordinary voyage ended after being intercepted in November 1941 by the HMS Dorsetshire, which caused Rogue to scuttle his radar when realising there was no way out. Um, the radar had been in the process of refueling a German U-boat at the time, and the British cruiser captain decided it was unsafe and immediately left the scene, which meant that the Atlantis's crew was all in lifeboats on the water, to which Admiral Dönitz organised a massive rescue operation with German and some Italian submarine, and they all got the crew safely back to Germany in a in a quite a daring improvised rescue operation. Um, that sinking had occurred in the South Atlantic, quite quite far from home. So the, the war is spreading across the globe, and these are dramatic stories, uh, but they get even more dramatic because uh, Tim Dobler, in early 1941, the, the pocket battleship Admiral Scheer joins the campaign and enters the Indian Ocean. So how effective was this warship in its role compared to the auxiliary cruisers that Stevens just told us about? 
Yeah, well, all in all, the auxiliary cruisers were responsible for uh, 70% of the tonnage sunk by uh, the German surface units during the whole war. Um, Admiral Scheer, however, was one of the few successful German cruisers. Um, she was sent on operations in the Atlantic and Indian Ocean in October 1940. And uh, on her way south, uh, she crossed the passing of the convoy uh, HX84, um, where she sunk five freighters, uh, damaged uh, six one. And uh, then she sunk their uh, escort, uh, the merchant cruiser Jervis Bay. All, although aware Admiral Scheer was, a super, was uh, the superior unit, Jervis Bay took on the engagement, enabled the rest of the convoy to escape. Um, Admiral Scheer then went uh, south to the Atlantic, where she patrolled uh, until February 1941 and then shifted her area of operations into the Indian Ocean. She sailed uh, northwards, where she sailed to the Seychelles, and from there she started her journey back home and arrived in Kiel uh, on the 1st of April 1941. Uh, her operation lasted uh, around 155 days, and she sunk around 17 ships with around 100,000 tons. So she was, uh, yeah, compared to uh, the auxiliary cruisers, um, one of the few uh, German cruisers uh, who managed to uh, sink uh, this amount of uh, tonnage. And to return to Germany. And to return to Germany, right. Mm. So thanks, John Perryman. As this toll of merchant losses mounts, the pressure must have grown on the Allies to counter these raiders. So how did the Allies approach the task of defeating them? Great question. Now, just listening to Tim's response there, well, I think what's really insightful about the Shia uh, in, in comparison to the raiders, and I just want to touch on this point, is that it was it's very, very easy to track a large warship. It stands out as a warship. Um, you can see that it's heavily armed, no matter what lengths they go to to try and disguise their appearance, for the most part, they're going to be exposed as a warship. Now, with the German auxiliary cruisers, this was something completely different. These vessels that uh, Stephen has discussed and explained to us, heavily armed, very, very adept at uh, conducting their operations and changing their appearance routinely, adopting the appearance of the sorts of ships that one would expect to be operating in the Indian Ocean, in the Atlantic Ocean, and in the Pacific Ocean. And they would do this very, very smartly and routinely. And it was simply a matter of melting away into the Pacific or wherever and putting the crew over the side, rigging up false structures and completely changing the guise of the ship. Very, very difficult to do. So the challenge for the British and the Australians and the Allies generally at this stage of the war was following the German dispersion of these ships around the world, how are we going to counter them? And the answer to that is through intelligence. Um, so here in Australia, you know, a, a, an effort was put into, you know, how can we do this? Now, for, for the Royal Australian Navy, um, we had a very, very good network at that stage, headed up by Commander Rupert Long, who was the Director of Naval Intelligence. It was a network which had been long established with the British Admiralty, and there was a good exchange of information going backward and forward. But 
Over the top of that, they also created something which was known as the Combined Operations Intelligence Centre. And this was where it would meet once a day in Melbourne to look at the strategic situation and see where these radar threats, uh, among others, were taking place. Now, initially, uh, the Navy representative on that was long. Uh, he was a little bit disarmed, uh, unhappy with, um, with how this was proceeding because he found that at that stage of the war that his Army and Air Force counterparts were more uh, centred on the domestic Australian issue, whereas the Navy had been looking at it in a much broader sense. Um, the effect that the Raiders were having around the world was making everybody nervous. Uh, routine convoys which carried troops weren't going uh, along the routes that they needed to go with, or important warships were having to be corralled to form convoys to better protect them. So these ships dispersed were becoming more than just a nuisance value. Um, I guess that the, the main success of the Combined Operations Intelligence Summary came when Long was actually pointed the, uh, the director of it, uh, having you know, discussed a number of its shortcomings. And from then on, there was a, a greater exchange and a greater appreciation and distribu distribution of the material that was vital to countering the broader naval threats. And this is where we started to you know, really understand from um, other encounters with um, raiders a little bit more about their nature of operations and things like that. So uh, that was of great benefit. But there was still this great sense of nervousness, particularly among merchant ships in the vastness of the, the oceans that surround Australia. And, and what I mean by that is there, were, there wasn't the warships to escort them. Um, often their voyages were made in isolation at high speed where they maintained radio silence. Um, and when a merchant ship was sunk, uh, for that for the merchant seamen on board, their contract went down with the ship. So what that meant for them was if they were to survive, well, that's one thing, but they weren't getting paid either. So that had an effect on their, their family as well. Um, I would like to touch on Captain Joseph Burnett, who uh, was the captain of HMAS Sydney when it did battle with the Cormoran. He was uh, at one point the Assistant Chief of Naval Staff in Melbourne, uh, where the Naval Headquarters was, and he took a very, very keen interest in the Raider problem. Um, down there, we had a, a number of measures put in place to, to keep an eye on the merchant ships that were in our immediate area. And what that meant was they stood up a place, or a section I should say, called the Mercantile Movement Ship Section. Uh, it was chiefly ran, uh, chiefly manned by women of the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service. And what their job was, was to basically uh, record all of the ships arriving on the Australia station and all of the ships departing. And what they would then do, do was they would transmit to the warships on our station on what was known as the VI, the V-A-I, the vessels in area indicated, a plot that they could refer to. So that if they were to encounter one of these mysterious ships, uh, they could go to this reference uh, record and say, okay, this ship is supposed to be in the area, uh, challenge it anyway, follow the procedure, and then bid it farewell, enjoy your voyage. But this was one of the initiatives that was thought to be foolproof. Now, in the case of uh, Captain Burnett, when he was the ACNS, the Assistant Chief of Naval Staff, he took a vested interest in all parts of the headquarters, and in particular, the mercantile movement section. 
And he was there on a number of occasions where he observed that the system was in fact fallible, where you had merchant ships arriving on the Australian station that had not made it onto the VAI. So he understood that that was fallible. It was supposed to be foolproof, but it wasn't. And that may have come back and had some sort of influence on him later on. Um, and interestingly, it was him in December 1940 that prepared a paper headed the policy against raiders in the Indian and Pacific Oceans based on the observations and his experience in that. So holistically, just to recap, uh, intelligence was gathered from any encounter that had been made with a raider. Those who had been rescued from uh, ships that had fallen victims to raiders were interrogated and more intelligence was drawn from them. And that helped us to sort of shape a response about not only where they will operate, uh, but how they operated and what might be the best way to deal with them. Mm, thank you. And it's a sad irony that Burnett himself died at the hands of the cormorant, uh, the very ships that he'd taken such a close interest in, in tracing. Um, Absolutely. And, then, uh, and, and that really is one of the ironies of this story. Indeed. Uh, now, you're telling us, all three of you are telling us a story that runs across the half the, the globe here. So if we could go to the Pacific, where uh, Stephen Robinson, you've described how no fewer than three German raiders uh, attacked the phosphate carriers and the phosphate island of Nauru. Can you tell us more about that operation? Um, yes, certainly. And this is a very interesting incident. So Nauru was formerly a German colony, um, but Germany lost um, Nauru after the Treaty of Versailles following World War I. After this point in time, Nauru was managed under an Australian administration as per a League of Nations mandate, and that oversaw a very strategically important phosphorus industry, a major source of export to Australia, New Zealand, the UK, and Japan. Now, Captain Essen of the Comet, um, he was an older generation of most of the other Raider captains. So he had pre-World War I service in the South Pacific and was very familiar with these waters and understood the importance of Nauru and that trade. So he became quite obsessed with um, attacking and, and destroying this trade. So initially, um, there were two, sorry, there were two raids. The first raid, the raiders Orion and Comets, supported by the supply ship Cumberland, approached Nauru and attacked the shipping around Nauru in bad weather over the 6th to the 8th of December 1940. They um, sink five ships, which is a major success. Um, Essen, although, had originally intended to land a shore party to destroy the infrastructure on the ground, but the bad weather had prevented it. And his obsession with this target meant that he couldn't let it go. So the Comet, by this time working by itself, returned to Nauru on the 27th of December and bombarded the shore infrastructure, destroying the phosphorus industry there, creating a massive amount of economic damage. And this was the only shore bombardment of the German auxiliary campaign. Um, but the German Navy was not entirely happy with this. Essen was certainly praised for its daring attack that did cause a lot of damage, but it created a slight problem for the Germans as neutral but 
Pro-Axis Japan was a major customer of the Nauru phosphorus trade. So this was going to cause shortages in Japan. So although he was praised for the raid, all the radar captains were told don't to not to repeat similar operations in the future. But this incident also um, brings home the importance of the individual character of each raider captain. And, and as Tim mentioned earlier, they were entrusted with very high amounts of initiative with very vague orders. And this is, this is an incident that evolved out of a particular personality. Mm. And just as a follow-up to that Nauru incident, the Germans are the raiders are are attacking and attacking ships and capturing their crews. So they need to do something with their crews. Can you tell us what happened on Emirau Island? Um, yes, certainly. So when the Orion and the Comet were working together with the with the Cumberland, with the Nauru and other operations, they eventually had over six hundred Allied prisoners, merchant seamen, passengers, including women and children. That were simply becoming um, too many mouths for them to feed. Now, Captain Essen was a very sort of humane, old-fashioned sort of a man, so he decided to release most of these prisoners um, in order for the Germans to be rid of the responsibility of um, looking after so many people. So the German ships arrived at the island one morning and released... 514 prisoners. Um, the captain of the Orion refused to release um, some of the military personnel he had captured, but all these prisoners were released into the care of two families of British plantation owners and the indigenous population that agreed to look after the, um, these, these castaways until help could arrive. So after the Germans left the scene, the castaways spent their time creating makeshift shelters, gathering food, but one small group of experienced merchant seamen, they took a small boat to New Island in order to raise the alarms since there was no um, radio where they were, and that started an Australian-led rescue operation. Now, initially an Australian flying boat arrived to take the key merchant officers directly to Melbourne for intelligence um, debriefings, and these were overseen by Commander Rupert Long, Director of Naval Intelligence, who personally interviewed these men. Um, eventually, three ships evacuated the other survivors and brought them to Australia, and more intelligence debriefs were also conducted. Now, these debriefs gave an excellent account of how the Raiders operated, but importantly, a lot of the um, senior merchant captains and officers had realised through their experience that the Germans must have broken Allied naval merchant naval codes, which had helped them find victims. So immediately um, these codes were changed and the raiders um, lost the advantage of having this particular source of intelligence. And now going back to what the orders the raiders were, and that was never to release prisoners. All prisoners were supposed to be put onto prize ships and sent to 
occupied Europe for internment for the duration of the war, which occurred on most occasions. So while being partially a humanitarian act, it also undermined German, the intelligence side of the Raider War, because so many mouths could then talk about what they had seen and experienced. Mm, indeed. So humanity in this case actually came back to bite the, the uh, Raider captains. Well, can we shift the theatre now from the Pacific to the Indian Ocean? Tim Dobler, can you summarise what was happening in the Indian Ocean? Uh, well, um, the Indian Ocean became the main area of operation for German raiders. Uh, and this for obvious reasons. Here they found the most important sea lanes connecting Great Britain with her dominions, Australia and New Zealand, for example. <clears throat> Although the German raider Atlantis operated as far north as the Bay of Bengal, um, in 1940 the raiders were focused on the area between Australia and South Africa. And um, in the duration of the war, uh, at least five of the uh, of the nine uh, active auxiliary cruisers operated there at one stage of their operation. And here they managed to um, distract uh, the merchant shipping and sunk around 60% of their victims. And that brings us to late 1941 and the most important or the most significant uh, action for Australia in this theatre and that's, of course, the Sydney Cormoran battle, which resulted in both ships being sunk. Uh, John Perriman, can you discuss the, the challenges of engaging raiders when they were finally identified and encountered at sea? Um, how did that work? Well, the, the greatest challenge um, was identifying them. So you, if you had a Commonwealth warship and it came across a suspicious merchant, a suspicious merchant vessel, um, the very first thing that one had to ask itself, is it friendly? Is it an enemy? Is it a neutral? Uh, you know, and you had to take that into consideration. You certainly didn't want to open fire on a friendly ship, and firing on a neutral ship was uh, was equally bad. So I think that with the raiders uh, and their penchants for deception, any warship would have to uh, was at a disadvantage. Uh, for the raider, it was very very obvious what they were dealing with, but for any other ship, you know, it was it was not as obvious. So there were a number of uh, procedures that were put in place and identifying the vessel was, was pivotal. First of all, they would challenge them, uh, tell them to hoist their signal letters. Now for uh, allied ships, a procedure had been put in place that if they were challenged by a friendly warship, they were expected to turn away, increase speed and identify themselves as a precautionary measure. Uh, what would then happen is they would check their signal letters that they'd hoisted, which is just four signal flags uh, flown from a, a foremast or a mainmast. They would check it against uh, their records. And uh, as I alluded to earlier, the, the, the vessels and area indicator was helpful in that regard. And if it checked out, they would then follow up with a, a second procedure, which is show your secret call sign. Now, this was something that was developed whereby the first or, or the second and third letters of their four-letter call sign would be transmitted to them and their response was to reply with the first and fourth and if that happened it was basically thank you for your cooperation we wish you a pleasant voyage so that that sounds quite simplistic but in order to do that you had to get pretty close to these ships visual signaling was restricted 
Um, the advantage that any warship had approaching a raider was to stand out of range and keep that vessel under the uh, under the guns of, you, of yours. So your reach basically uh, would see that you know you were at the advantage. Now, when it came to visual signalling, uh, you had to get close to read the visual signals. And if a ship was up sun or if it turned into the sun, it made it all the more difficult. The raiders themselves employed all sorts of tactics, and certainly the Cormoran did this in the uh, episode with the uh, Sydney, where they made a real display of fumbling the flags, uh, being panicky, and giving this illusion that they were being set upon. So, you know, as you've said, the, the vexing question was, you know, how do you go about this? Um, as far as experiences are concerned, let's have a look at two. Uh, the New Zealand ship, uh, HMS, HMNZS Leander, uh, she had had an incident where she intercepted an Italian raider, the Ram 1, in the Indian Ocean in February of 1941. And after following the procedure for challenging that vessel, she found herself within range and uh, it was a near thing for her. She eventually got the upper hand and Ram was disposed with, but she was not the only one. HMS Cornwall was another. Uh, in her case, she received uh, scathing criticism for allowing herself to become within range of the Penguin. So there were these instances where it wasn't isolated to HMAS Sydney. There'd been a number of uh, situations that had uh, taken place previously where other warships of the Commonwealth had found themselves, you know, facing a similar problem. The difficulty of Sydney, of course, was that uh, she got way, way too close. And when the net was laid at her feet and the trap was sprung, it was too late. Hmm. So the Cormoran is sunk, and that may seem to be the end of the German raider war in the Indian Ocean. But Stephen Robinson, the raiders Thor and Michel, Michael, restart the raider war in the Indo-Pacific in 1942. How did their voyages differ from the earlier campaign? And the most important factor is the obvious increased strength of the Allied navies and therefore that is a creates a restriction of German operations. It's also much harder for the Germans to send out supply ships. A lot of the supply ships are being sunk around at this time, so it's far harder for the Germans to sustain radar operations as now the war is turning against the Axis. So, however, we still see successful voyages, just as not as successful as the earlier voyages. Uh, the Indo-Pacific region had changed a lot from a relatively peaceful strategic backwater into a major theatre after Pearl Harbour. So now the raiders can benefit from their Axis ally Japan through access to Japanese bases, which does change the way the operations were conducted. So now specifically talking about the Thor, the Thor initially had a, an, an, a first voyage in the South Atlantic in 1940-1941, re returned home after a very successful raid. Then the Thor departed on a second journey, eventually from Germany all the way to Yokohama, raiding the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean on the way, sinking 10 ships. So quite a successful operation, but not as successful as the first voyage. The Thor was then preparing for another voyage when she was accidentally sunk um, when there was an explosion 
of another ship in port that also destroyed the Thor. Now the Michael voyaged from Germany to Yokohama also arriving in March 1943, sinking 15 ships along the way, which is still an impressive um, tally. The Michael then attempted a second voyage in the Pacific and Central Pacific areas and was on the verge of returning to Japan when the radar was sunk by the US submarine Tarpoon on the 20th of October, 1943. And during this voyage, the radar only sank three ships, which is a dramatic decrease in success compared to all other radar voyages. Um, this was the last German auxiliary cruiser voyage and the destruction of the Michael caused the end of that era. So you've looked at this campaign through your book, False Flags, Disguised German Raiders of World War II. Can you give us a, a summary of the, the final total of, say, ships lost and people killed through the course of this long raider campaign uh, on the Allied side? Uh, yes. So the German auxiliary cruisers sank almost a million tonnes of Allied shipping. And considering there was a modest investment to convert these freighters into raiders, that was certainly a, a wise in investment of effort. Um, in terms of the Allied casualties, if we're talking specifically about merchant vessels, um, sort of the low hundreds is, is a good estimate of that. The highest loss of life was not merchant sailors, but the crew of the HMA of Sydney, as we've previously discussed. Mm. So the radar captains were quite humanitarian in many ways. However, they were very ruthless about opening fire to silence enemy radios. Naturally, their biggest fear was um, a radar warning that would broadcast um, the Allied navies to their presence and risk their own vessel. So until enemy radios were silenced and also stern guns on merchantmen, the Germans were quite ruthless to protect their own ships. However, once radios were silenced, the radar captains would do all possible to save um, enemy lives. So in many cases, radar captains rescued survivors and spent a lot of time searching for drowning sailors, even when they received confirmation that Allied warships had been alerted to their presence and such rescue operations were against their own interests. Um, so we do see a certain chivalry in this war that certainly comes from a sense of of an international brotherhood amongst sailors. Mm, it's a remarkable story. And to finish the German side of the story, Tim Dobler, can you tell us what the total German losses were among the raiders? Um, of course. Uh, one of the first and probably one of the most famous losses among the German raiders was the one of uh, Admiral Graf Spee in late 1939. Uh, her commanding officer, uh, Captain Langsdorf, was honored by his enemies for his chivalry uh, because no crew member of the sea's merchant ships, ships died. And he was loved by his crew because he saved uh, so many uh, of them with the scuttling of his ship. However, nowadays in Germany, he, is, he as a naval officer is as high regarded as controversial discussed because one has always need to keep in mind that he committed suicide on a flag of the Kriegsmarine with a swastika. And um, for the auxiliary cruisers, 
uh, in the duration of the war, all of them were sunk or were lost. Um, however, three of uh, the nine um, German raiders uh, returned to Germany uh, before they were sunk. Um, the uh, Orion and the uh, raider Bitter were re, um, uh, yeah, received new tasks, uh, tasks as they were unable to continue the raider uh, duty and uh, were sunk uh, for, uh, do, yeah, while doing or exercising their tasks, new tasks. Mm. Um, mainly, they were converted into uh, um, target ships for atel uh, artillery uh, exercises. Mm. Um, uh, like uh, Stephen mentioned, uh, Thor and Michael were lost on their second uh, operations. And um, yeah, four uh, German raiders uh, were sunk in the duration of the first missions, like Cormoran. And the only actual um, Raider who returned to Germany and was refitted for a second um, uh, operation was the Comet, uh, but she uh, was sunk uh, on um, yeah after departing uh, for her second uh, mission by a British motor torpedo boat. So uh, all of uh, the auxiliary cruisers um, yeah were sunk. But the crew, the ships that made it back to Germany before they went out on their second tour, must have been regarded as heroes. Their crews must have been hailed as as absolute heroes of the Reich. Uh, yes, um, I think uh, all of the commanding officers received the Knight's Cross, and I think uh, there was this um, special badge in initial issued for for uh, auxiliary cruisers, um, which. Um, made them more, even more special to uh, uh, compare to other uh, serving personnel mm, at that time. Um, now, that's sadly about all we have time for, but can I ask each of you to uh, offer some final thoughts about the Raider campaign across the world in the Second World War? First, Tim. Uh, well, uh, for the Kriegsmarine, the Raiders were the only possibility to expand the war to the far side of the globe. Um, at the same time, they were unforeseeable and deadly opponents to Allied merchant shipping, and in the case of HMS Sydney for warship. However, uh, due to the absence of overseas bases and support, they fought a lost cause. And um, I, I think that every captain must have known that their chance of a safe return was, was very limited. Thanks. And John, your thoughts? I, th I think that it was a, a remarkable campaign mounted by the Germans in a very, very clever way. Um, and it's, it's insightful. There's, there's two quotes that I'd like to, um, uh, to refer to. The first is by uh, Theodore Detmers, who, of course, was the commanding officer of uh, the Cormoran. He remarked after the war that the German auxiliary cruisers did their job very well and their effectiveness was proven again and again. Enemy shipping was forced to sail circuitous, time-wasting and fuel-wasting courses, which was exactly what we wanted. So that, that's from one of the raider captains. And to a large extent, he's absolutely right, because when you consider that this was just nine vessels deployed variously, uh, which were capable of mining, uh, sinking merchant ships, 
destroying shore installations, capturing ships and taking them as a prize. And in Cormoran's case, uh, she captured 10, took the 11th as a prize. And in, during that time, she was at sea for over a year or almost a year, in which time the crew never set foot ashore. So it demonstrated a high level of uh, uh, resilience by the crew, leadership. Uh, quite often, these captains were uh, selected for their seamanship skill and these other skills that they brought to it. But I think that to summarise, the uh, the adjutant of the Atlantis, Ulrich Moore, um, I think he sums it up really, really well in this statement. An action fought in the Indian Ocean may affect events in the North Sea or the Arctic. For every ship sunk by a single raider in the course of hours caused scores of others to be rerouted or become harbour bound for weeks. And the decisions of armies battling from Libya to the Volga can be governed by the fortunes of humble merchantmen. So what he's in fact alluding to there is a very good summary of how events at sea invariably affect events ashore, which of course is what sea power is all about. So it was a, a very, very cleverly devised campaign uh, using vessels that uh, were taken up from trade to very, very good effect. Did it achieve their aim to disrupt shipping and, cre and create pandemonium? Absolutely it did. Mm, thank you. And Stephen, you know the ships and especially their captains in great detail because of your book. Uh, what are your final thoughts about this remarkable exercise in, as John's just said, sea power? Yeah, this campaign, much like um, with Rommel in North Africa, was a war without hate and without war crimes, with the sole exception of the raider Widder in the Caribbean, whose captain abandoned survivors in lifeboats on the high seas and was, and was later charged and convicted as a war criminal. But it is interesting to note that most Allied prisoners who were all accustomed to wartime propaganda expected very harsh treatment at the hands of the, of the Hun, but they found that the Germans actually treated them with genuine regard for their welfare and, to, and really did actually um, care about looking after them. So what we see there is a strange respect and even bonds of friendship forged between um, captives and prisoners, which are in fact on many occasions outlasted the war. And so just as a very final point, it's certainly worth noting on that note that Captain Wire of the Orion survived the war and later became an admiral in the West German Navy. So in fact, became a, a NATO Cold War ally of the West in the end. Hmm. That's a very appropriate note to end on. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you all, especially to Tim Dobler, who's joined us from Germany, John Perriman from the Sea Power Centre, and Canberra author Stephen Robinson. Later in this series, there will be an episode on the little-known German U-boat campaign off Australia, and that's one to look out for. If you like what we've done in this series, please rate this episode using a star rating system, uh, which you'll find on the site. This podcast has been produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group 
on your search engine. Goodbye for now.